You're listening to a message from Christ's Covenant Church, where we are growing together in Christ as a caring community of disciple-makers. Thank you for listening, and please feel free to share this with others who may find it helpful. Book of Nehemiah, chapter 5. Uh, that's where we are as we're going through this book of the Bible this summer. Uh, we are getting close to about halfway through it, and so uh, we're going to try to tackle this whole chapter today of Nehemiah 5, and uh, we're going to see really quickly that it has a lot to do with money and with finances and how we relate to each other uh, as God's people with our money, and I was trying to think of a story uh, that uh, that I could share involving money and someone ripping another person off but not wanting to share one about this community, although I have not experienced that, I don't think, thankfully. So I was going back into my mental inventory of stories from my life, and I was remembering one where I was the guilty party uh, when I was a young kid. I think I was in grade school, probably like fourth grade, something like that. It was in the summertime, I remember that. Uh, but in our neighborhood, me and my twin brother, uh, Mike, we had a, a group of friends we would play with all the time. Uh, we would throw balls around in the street and uh, play games together, video games all the time. And there was one friend in particular, he was just several houses down on the other side of the street. And uh, one day he did what kids often will do. They get ambitious, wanting to make a little bit of money for themselves. And so he set up a little table out in their yard and put a sale sign on front of it and then went in his house and tried to find stuff that he was willing to part with and put price tags on them uh, and then invited people to come and shop. And I think me and my brother were probably the only people who came to shop at his little store. Uh, but one of the things that he had out was baseball cards. And we were uh, baseball card aficionados back then. We had a whole stack of them. And we had Beckett magazines, if any of you remember those, that would tell you how much every card was worth and had a good frame of mind of how much certain cards were worth and, and weren't. And we saw, and we were really excited about this, that our friend had one card out for sale that we knew was very valuable. I don't even remember what the card was, but we knew it was very valuable. And he had something on it like a quarter or 50 cents, something like that. And so we're uh, like super excited about this, get our money and, and give it to him. And we do not have good poker faces and aren't good at keeping lies in. And so right after we buy from him, we let him know uh, that we just ripped him off, essentially, uh, and that, that we now have this card. And he was upset, um, understandably, rightfully so. And we were arrogant enough, and I didn't realize at the time, we went back to our house and set up our own sale. Uh, we put our own table out, and we put that card out, among other things, with a much higher price tag on it uh, that was closer to it. And our friend comes over to our sale and is going through our stuff to look through it, and he does have a good poker face. Uh, he's going through our cards and whatnot, and then at the end of the afternoon when we're pick, putting things away, we realize that card is gone. Uh, so he had come back and stolen it from us who had ripped him off. And I, I share that story once so you can know with, with what we're about to talk about that I have been guilty of these things. Maybe in a story that feels funny and seed form as a kid. Um, but also to be an example of what we're going to see in this passage but on a much bigger scale of, of two things. One is how financially selfish we can be as human beings. Uh, we are born into this world selfish, every single one of us. And our, the way we spend money and go about getting money is exhibit A of where that's put on display. Uh, the, when it comes to our finances, we show selfishness from a very young age. But the second is that the thing you can see even in my little story and what we'll see here is the division that can be caused because of money. That, that even amongst people who love each other, people who are bonded together, people who are in community together, even in churches, 
uh, how money can be a wedge issue and the way that we spend it and interact with each other financially can be a great source of division amongst God's people. And so we're going to see in this story today, we're going to see some bad examples of how people God, how the people of God use their money. And we're going to see a good example uh, in the person of Nehemiah. Um, but So we're going to see both positive and negative examples. But the, the message I would want to convey to each of us today and that I was convicted of even of myself this week in reading this story is this. Is within the community of God's people, within the community of God's people, be selfless with your finances. Be selfless with your finances. And we're going to start in this story. We're going to pick up in the middle of it. And I know some of you haven't been here uh, every week or maybe any of the weeks where we've been in this story. So very quick, where we are in this story. Uh, This is in the Old Testament. It was long before, hundreds of years before Jesus would ever come. Uh, But God's people had been, uh, long before even what we read today, had been kicked out of the promised land, the land they lived in for so long, and even their capital city, Jerusalem. They had been kicked out. They had been sent into exile. And then uh, before even the start of Nehemiah, the story we've gone through this summer, God had started to move in the hearts of these foreign kings who were ruling over them and, and, and started to move them to let them, let God's people go back. Uh, and so that slowly but surely God's people started to go back to the land, even go back to Jerusalem. And where we pick up in Nehemiah is where they are starting, Nehemiah has heard about how bad the situation is there even still that their enemies are taking advantage of them, that his people are uh, in a very hard situation, and his heart is moved to want to go back and help build the wall around the city, uh, to, to manage the people, to inspire the people to build the wall around the city. And they, last week we saw how they met opposition to that from the enemies around them, how they would taunt them, how they would threaten them, and how Nehemiah had organized them uh, to combat that in different ways, to, to fight against the opposition, even without firing a shot, so to speak. Uh, But this time, as we get to this story, we're going to see that there's a threat that arises from within. Um, The enemies aside, that even within God's people, within those walls, there's going to be division. It's going to center around money and people who are being selfish uh, to degrees that are hard to comprehend with their money. And so in this first half, we're going to see that we need, if we're going to be selfless with our finances, we need to have a loving regard for fellow believers, that we need to have a loving regard for fellow believers. And so as we pick up, we're going to see the negative example of how God's people were spending their money. And so follow along with me, Nehemiah chapter 5. I'll I'll read the first five verses, we'll pause, and then we'll read down to verse 14. So follow along with me as we pick up this story. Nehemiah records for us, Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers, For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of famine. And there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. And so to get a little glimpse here of of what is happening, uh, I I want you to remember that 
even before Nehemiah had gotten to Jerusalem, even before he had been there to start to inspire this rebuilding, the situation was not good. Uh, that they had, We're going to see as the story goes on, they had already been in a very bad spot. There had been a drought we saw here, and this was an economy where they were largely dependent on crops and on vineyards and grain and being able to grow these things. And there, so there had been a drought. They had even started, we know, to have to sell their kids as slaves to the nations around them so that, that because they were so desperate for money. But you see here, Nehemiah is recording that, that it's getting even worse as he's gotten there, as he started to arrive on the scene. And this, this makes sense if you stop and think about it, that this was already a difficult situation. People were already stretched thin even before Nehemiah got there. And when he gets there, what does he ask them to do with their strong dads and sons and even the, the women who could help maybe not lift these stones and whatnot, some of them, but they're helping with food and whatnot. Nehemiah is calling the people who are already stretched thin and in a bad economic spot to leave your fields alone, leave your vineyards alone, and come every day sun up to sundown and come work on the wall, come work on the, the, the protection that we need around our city. So the situation is getting even worse. They're not able to even take care of their own place, their own homes, their own crops at all. And so Nehemiah here records for us that this great outcry comes up in verse 1. And it is against their Jewish brothers. It's not against the people outside the walls. It's against the people inside the walls. And he puts these outcries on the lips of Three groups of people, if you follow through that. In verse 2, we see that some of these people, maybe they don't even own land at all, but they say, we have many, when we think about the sons and daughters that are in our family, our family is big, and we don't even have grain to eat and to stay alive. This is not just, oh, we don't have the stuff that we want. They don't even have the basic necessities to stay alive and to provide for their families, to have food to feed their families. And the second group in verse 3, Nehemiah puts on their lips, it's this group of people who did have possessions. They did have fields and vineyards and houses that they, that they mention here. But what they say to Nehemiah is, our situation is so bad, we're starting to have to, to give away part of those, whether it's part of my field or I'm having to give as collateral to people who have money, certain possessions that are valued of mine. I'm having to give that to them to have any money to even be able to provide for my family and to have us eat. And so they're starting to have to give away their possessions. And then in verse 5, the the real issue comes to the surface. It's been kind of like lava underneath the earth's surface that's about to just bust through the volcano and spew everywhere. What what you see in verse 5 is that it's been a bad situation, but what they are particularly upset about as they have to even pay taxes and things like that, even additional costs they mention, is that these people have gotten to a point where they are having to sell their children as slaves. They have nothing left possession-wise to give to people for money other than their own children. And it's not just foreign nations they're selling them to now. It's fellow Jews. It's people within the city who are looking... As a fellow Jew, they are looking at their situation and how bad off they are as God's people. And instead of being generous to them and lending to them, they say, let me have your son to come work for me. That will be your collateral to give to me. That will be the cost of me giving you funds. Give me your daughter to come and live with us and work with us. And some people suggest maybe even worse things are happening to those daughters. And these are Jews doing this to fellow Jews. 
It is the, the, not just the enemies of God's people. It is God's people doing it to each other. They see people in bad situations and they take advantage of them. And this, this, if you read chapter 4, you may have thought this community of God was strong and they're resolved and they're united and, and they, they are against their opponents and they're all together. But this start of chapter 5 lets us see this is more like maybe a piece of wood or a tree trunk that looks good and strong on the outside but it's rotting from within. God's people inside the city are taking advantage of each other. They're seeing other people's economic hard places as a chance to gain possessions or gain money for themselves, and they don't feel bad about it in the slightest. And Nehemiah hears these complaints. He's only been there a couple months at this point in time, but he he hears these complaints. He sees this anger and resentment just bursting forth from these people because fellow Jews, fellow members of God's people are treating them this way with their finances and Nehemiah, as he hears this, if you know much about him from our study yet, you know, he's not just going to sit on that. He's not just going to say, I'm so sorry. Like, I'll, I'll, I'll pray for you, things like that. He's going to do something about it. He is going to confront these people. He's going to address them. And so I want you to follow along with me to see what he does, how he addresses this within the community of God's people, because he does it very, very strongly, I think very wisely i will say one thing before we read this this may help you make sense of a thing that is kind of confusing down in verse eight when we hit that nehemiah as he had gotten into the city we piece this together from some of these things especially verse eight and what we're about to read he had known that the situation had been so bad even before he got there that they had had to start to sell their kids or their young people as slaves to these foreign people around them and so one of the things it seems that nehemiah had done in, the, in his first weeks there, was he had, st- he had seen that and been appalled by that and wanted to get those kids back to their families. And so what he had done is it seems he had raised a small tax maybe upon the, Jew- the Jewish people there in Jerusalem and pooled their funds together. And then they took those to those people who had bought the Jewish young people as slaves and bought them back. They said, we're not having this. Like, we are getting them back to their families. We're getting them back to our people. And so that's a side note that will maybe help make sense uh, when we get down to verse 8 as as some of the backstory. But let's see how Nehemiah responds to this, verses 6 through 13. As he's heard these outcries from God's people, he writes this about himself and his response. I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent. And could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, We will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. 
And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. So we see here Nehemiah's first response is these things, these outcries come to him as he is angry. He is very angry. He says about himself so much in verse uh, 7, he says that he had to take counsel with himself. That's a way of almost, I think, of saying and what commentators say is like of calming himself down. Of saying, I got to like stew on this a little bit. I got to get myself uh, in a a place of self-control before I go address these things because he is furious that God's people are doing this to each other, that they are taking financial advantage of each other. And so what he does is he brings together, he forms charges mentally against them that they're exacting interest. They're, they're in a sense, ripping these people off. They're taking advantage of them uh, in verse 7. That's the charge he's going to make. But then to do that, to bring the charge against them, did you note this? He said that he held a great assembly against them. Like he wanted them to be exposed for what they were doing. He wanted it to be out in the light of day of how they were treating their fellow Jews. And he holds this great assembly. And in front of them, he, in verse 8, references, I think, what he thinks is the worst part of their actions. Uh, and I was alluding to this before we read this section. He references how we, as God's people, we've bought back all these people that families had to sell out as slaves. And what he is saying is they have stooped to such a level. Some of these people that were within Jerusalem who are the more wealthy, they had had fellow Jews sell their kids to them, which is bad enough uh, that they would be willing to do that. But what they had done, they knew, oh, like the city collectively, whenever a kid gets sold out to the nations, they'll buy them back. Like they'll raise some taxes and the community will buy them back for us. And so they see, oh. I can go out to somebody in the nations and I can sell this kid, this young person, for full price to somebody from the nations. And I know everybody else will kind of share the load and uh, the rest of the fellow, my fellow Jews will pay to get them back. And so they're just seeking even more to make more money for themselves, uh, to take a situation where they're already gaining a worker, gaining a person, and say, I'm going to sell them at full price and then put the cost onto everybody else. And Nehemiah is sick of it. Like, he cannot stand the selfishness of these people that they are just seeking to pad their bottom line, to do anything and everything to make money. And they are silent, he lets us know in verse 8. They're silent as he addresses this and couldn't find a word to say. And then he, he, he says the thing is the understatement. The thing you are doing is not good. And then he brings out this phrase, the fear of God. He says, ought you not to walk in the fear of our God? And so he, he is trying to show them and show all who are, are listening in that, that someone's fear of God, their, their reverence for God, their respect for him, is going to translate into how they deal financially with God's people. Those things go hand in hand in Nehemiah's mind and in, in the word of God over and over and over. That if you have a genuine fear of God, a reverence for him, you are going to deal with his people in a way that is generous, that is gracious, that is, that is kind to them. You're not going to look for ways to manipulate and to make money for yourself. So he, he implies that they do not have a fear of God in them. But verse 10 is an interesting thing. I don't know if you noticed this, but 
Nehemiah seems like he even mentions that he's been doing this to some degree. Maybe not as much. Maybe he's not just sheerly trying to make a profit. That's huge. Maybe he's just trying to make a little bit of money with whatever possessions he has that he may lend out. But in verse 10, he says that I and my brothers and my servants are lending the money and grain. Then he says, let us abandon this exacting of interest. And so Nehemiah, like all of us, is not exempt from this temptation to, to see God's people at times as a way to make money for ourselves. And we may not do it as aggressively as others, but it is a, a temptation that is present within all of us. And they cause them to, to abandon this, to kind of like the story of Zacchaeus that you read Jesus uh, talking to him in the New Testament. He tells these people collectively, stop doing this and give everybody back their stuff. Give them back their land. Give them back their vineyards. Give them back their homes, the things that they have given to you. Give them back. And we don't know if it's because of public exposure or what, or feeling a sense of guilt or shame, but they agree to it. And Nehemiah, to ratchet up, pressure makes them even make vows before the priests, saying, I promise I will do this. Uh, In verse 12, he has them do that. He uses this image in verse 13 of how they, in their garments back then, would have sometimes things that were they wanted to be secure, but not necessarily people to be able to see. They'd put them up in their garment, in, the, in their clothing, and have their belt around so it wouldn't fall off, fall out. Nehemiah uses this custom and says, if you don't change, if you continue to see God's people as a means to make money for yourself, if you continue in the selfishness, with your money. May God shake you out. May God drop you from his people. May God get rid of you and expose you, let you be dropped from his safety, dropped from his protection, dropped from his control. As a strong wording to them, and the assembly all together says, Amen and praise the Lord. And then they did as they promised. In verse 13, that they came through on this. They, they stopped exacting interest from people. They gave back the possessions that they had taken for themselves. And this text may seem like it has absolutely no relevance to us. Uh, our situation is very different in Winona Lake and Warsaw in 2018 than it is uh, hundreds of years before Christ came in Jerusalem. Uh, in many different ways. It, it's a very far-removed situation. Their economy, they pretty much only dealt with fellow people of God. Uh, that, their economy and the people of God mixed together. So every dealing they had was with a fellow person in their spiritual community. Ours is not. We have many dealings with people who are not Christians at all. Uh, but there is much, I think, that we can learn about our hearts in this that are, are similar to these people, the temptations that we to be selfish with our finance. And I want to help us think just briefly about how we interact with fellow Christians financially. Uh, I think that would be the natural application of this text because this is about how they interacted with one another within the community of God's people. And I want us to think, how do we interact financially when it comes to our fellow Christians? There's much that we could say and maybe we'll say on another week, another text about how we deal generally speaking, uh, with human beings at all. But there are special things we're called to do, special ways we're called to interact with God's people. And you see that on display here. And so I think Nehemiah would address our hearts here. He would address not just our actual actions, but our hearts that are motivating them. Because I hope to God there are not any of us in this room today who are knowingly and aggressively exploiting fellow Christians. 
If there is, I would call you just like Nehemiah to put a stop to that today. To stop taking advantage of people who are in need. To stop manipulating circumstances to just pad your own pocket. But I am guessing that most of us, that's not our situation. We're not knowingly, aggressively, unlovingly taking advantage of our fellow Christians. But I would challenge you to think that there is, I think there is in most of us still a self-centeredness when it comes to our finances. That there is a desire that we have uh, to, to pad our own pockets, to have our own incomes be higher, our own outgoing expenses be lower. Nehemiah is addressing the hearts of these people. If you read back in Old Testament law, the laws they would have been under as God's people, they were allowed to lend. They were allowed to do these deals where they would maybe give land as collateral for money. They were allowed to do these things. The, the, the letter of the law maybe was even being followed in some of these circumstances that Nehemiah is addressing. But he is trying to press people beyond just the letter of the law and see what is your heart in this. Like, what is your intent as you're interacting with this person, as you're interacting with this family? He says in verse 9, the thing you are doing is not good. And it's not just because it broke the letter of the law of the Old Testament. It's because their hearts are twisted in it. That their motives is just to build up their own financial security and to have no regard for how their decisions are affecting others. Have no regard for how their, their choices and their actions are impacting these families, their motive was to increase their bottom line, plain and simple. And it didn't matter what they had to do to do it. It didn't matter who they had to take advantage of to do it. They were wanted to pad their own bottom line. And Nehemiah says, you are not fearing God when you do that. Your heart is selfish. You have become twisted and self-centered when it comes to your finances. And he, he implies to them that if you have a fear of God, your heart's going to be bent the opposite way. Like you're not going to just see finances as a way to gain, to gain, to gain, to have more and more for myself, more and more for my family. But you are at minimum at a heart level, you're going to have an orientation to see God's people as valuable and to see their condition as important as your own. To see their financial security as important as your own. And he does not see that in these people. And I would say that, that is, I do not see that in all of our lives. I do not see that in my life at times. Where I care as much about other people and their finances as I care about me. We see ourselves, our, our finances very selfishly, I would suggest to you. And I am guilty of this too. And if you don't think that you do, if you, if you think that you are not, I, I would have you think about a few things. I, I doubt, I hope, like I said, none of you are exploiting fellow Christians knowingly. But there, I think there are more subtle ways that we can see that we are selfish when it comes to our finances. Our, this, one of them is just that we is a symptom of being American, I think. And I love being an American. Uh, but that in America, we have this idea of ourselves as kind of like financial free agents. Like as financial just individuals who I have my own little economy, my own finances, my own bookkeeping, or my family, we have our own finances. And we rarely think about how our financial situation is related to the financial situation of others. We keep track of how much money we have, how much savings we have, how much retirement we have. And maybe we keep track of the national debt just as a joke, but very rarely do we think of any categories outside of ourselves and the financial situation of others. 
the finances of other families, the finances of larger groups of people that I'm part of. We just think of ourselves as financial individuals. And if you don't believe that's true, I would ask you this. I'm guilty of this. The times in, in your life where you have financial increase, where, where, whether you have a raise or you have another person in your family start to work or someone gives you a large gift or you come into money somehow through an inheritance or something like that, I would ask you, do, do you see that purely as a gain for yourself? Or does your mind at all go to how that could benefit other people? Does it all go to, to think of how can I give more to people? How could I help be generous to people who are in need or to give towards causes that are bigger than myself? And most of our minds do not go there. We have our own bottom line as our highest aim financially. So we'll work more. We'll go to the job that we get paid more. We'll, we'll any, do anything to get another dollar or to save another dollar. Whether it's to, to gain or to, to minimize what I give out. And many of us, we will even defend that because of our Christian freedom. We'll say that I'm in Christ. Christ died for me. Like, I'm not under law. I'm not, we don't have tithing in the New Testament, which I agree with, actually, uh, that we don't. Like, we don't have all these laws we have to keep about how much I give here and who I give to here and who I give to. I'm free in Christ to do whatever I want financially. I, people that Nehemiah may have talked to me have said, I'm not breaking the law that Moses gave us. I'm free to do this. It's lawful. It's permissible. I would just challenge us that many times we use that freedom in Christ to justify selfishness. To say, I'm free, but I don't want to give. I'm free, but I don't want to help other people. I want to help me. And we, we can, in a very ugly way, and we might not even realize it, sometimes use our Christian freedom as a, a justification to be selfish with our money, to be selfish with our finances, to just think of how to keep more for myself and give less to others. So I would ask you, how is your heart oriented when it comes to your money, when it comes to your finances, when it comes to the things that God has blessed you with? Or do you have a heart orientation? Do you have orientation as a person to have eyes out for the broader community, to have eyes out for other families, other people who are in need, to have eyes out of how you can contribute to greater causes and greater pools of funds that are used for the mission of God? than just your own bank account. This is is a radical reorienting I think many of us need to have, myself included, to think more of us when it comes to my finances than I think about me. Think collectively instead of individually. So this has been the negative example. We see God's people in ugly ways being very selfish, being self-centered with their money. But as we turn to the second half of this chapter, verses 14 down through 19, we're going to see a positive example of the way a person of God, Nehemiah himself, uh, was generous, was selfless with his finances, the setting of a godly example. So I don't know to what degree... uh, Referring back to verse 10, Nehemiah was convicted here of maybe his own practices, the ways he was maybe subtly seeking to pad his bottom line. But something uh, triggers in him this desire to be generous, this desire to be a model of how to use finance, of how to use the money God has given to him, the possessions God has given to him. And so uh, this is, I will say this as we read this, this is him kind of in his narrator voice stepping out of the moment so far we've only covered like a couple months of work 
And then in verse or in chapter six, he's going to drop back down into this live action story again. This what we're about to read is him writing. He's writing this at the end after all of the story's over, right? It's him kind of summarizing what the next 12 years were going to be like and how he sought to live financially with God's people. And so this is kind of him offering his retrospect story. So follow along with me, verse 14 to 19. He says, Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, Neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. But I did not do so. Then this is that phrase again, because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there are at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. And what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this I did not demand the food allowance of the governor, because the service was too heavy on this people." Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. I realize that you could read this and think Nehemiah is kind of self-serving. Maybe he's, he's making himself look better than he was. But this is inspired by the Holy Spirit. I believe it is accurate accounting of what he did, of the example he set. And I, I would phrase this, this last section, this, that if we're going to be selfless in our financial dealings with God's people, that we need to have sacrificial generosity toward fellow believers. We need to have sacrificial generosity toward fellow believers. And this text that we just read, we see that Nehemiah actually became the governor of the land of Judah. We hadn't known that yet, um, but he, he accounts that for us, that he became the governor of the land of Judah there around Jerusalem. And he references that he was that for 12 years And in a couple places, verses 14 and then down in verse 18, he references this food allowance that the governor of the land was allowed to have, that that there was ability that they had, and this makes sense. We still see it in governments today where uh, those who are in governmental jobs who maybe aren't making money in the private sector, that they pool funds from the community to be able to provide for them and those that work for them. And even he implies there's people from the nations around that come, and he has to entertain them, host them, things like that. There was this cost that he could have put out onto the people. And he even says in verse 15 that the governors who came before him felt totally free to do that, and maybe more, that they were taking from the people, laying a heavy burden upon them, he says in verse 15. But he is resolved to not do that. To say, you know what, I could do that. I have a right to do that as the governor, to, to take from uh, the many, to be able to, to, to care for these people who are in my care. But he doesn't. He acts different as a leader. In verse 16, he says he didn't seek to acquire land for himself, even though he could. Um, verse 17, he talks about the people, 150 men who were at his table that he had to feed and take care of. 
uh, and then all these guests that came. And then in verse 18, he talks about this larger, I can't imagine killing an ox a day. I don't even know, I don't know much about animals, but oxen are big, and killing one every day, I mean, that alone would be costly to no end, but he's saying every day for 12 years, at his own cost, he says, at his own expense, he provided these needs for the people under his care. He didn't share that cost onto everybody. He did it at his own expense. And the reasons he gives, he gives us two reasons of why he was generous this way, why he was willing to give sacrificially from his own money, his own possessions. One reason is back in verse 15, he says, because of the fear of God. There's that phrase again. It's not just because he loved his fellow Jews, but he had a reverence for God and knew that that would translate into a generosity towards his people. But down in verse 18, you see the other reason is that he, he has, it's down at the end of verse 18, he has compassion on his fellow Jews. He knew if he laid that cost on them that it would be too much for them to bear. And he knows they're in hard economic times and he doesn't want to share an extra load upon them. So there's this fear of God, but there's this compassion for his fellow people of God. And he's motivated to be sacrificially generous towards his fellow people of God. And I, I love this because this is in seed form, what Nehemiah is doing, what he's modeling this generosity, this sacrificial generosity is a model to us of what Jesus would do on a far grander scale for us. Uh, if we could put up a passage, there's a passage from the New Testament after Jesus came. It's from 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 8, verse 9. I, I love this text because uh, this is about our Lord and Savior Jesus and about how spiritually he gave up everything that was his and being in the heavens with God the Father to come and be a human gave his very life upon the cross, making himself poorer and poorer and poorer. But he did it so that we might gain. Paul wrote this. He said, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. That is a beautiful picture on an infinitely grander scale than what Nehemiah did uh, of someone who had much. Jesus had infinite possessions, infinite power as he sat in the heavens with God the Father, but he gave it up to come and live among us as a Jewish carpenter born to poor parents and to be mistreated and to even die upon the cross. He gave up his very life for us. He became poorer and poorer and poorer out of his own wealth, giving and giving. And after dying upon the cross for our sin, even for our sins of financial selfishness, he was raised from the dead and given authority over all things. And now as the one who has authority over all things and possession of all things, he gives to us. People who have nothing, we are, if these families were bankrupt and in trouble, we are in way worse condition spiritually. We got nothing to bring to God but our sin. We got nothing to offer him like on a transaction level of God. I can give you this. I think this is good. Can you be generous back to me? We have nothing to give to him. We come to him just with our sin and our, our ugliness and our brokenness. And he receives us. He doesn't manipulate us, rip us off. He sees us with nothing. We're bankrupt and gives us eternal life. Gives us himself. Gives us the Holy Spirit to live within us. Gives us brothers and sisters in Christ who love us and help us. None of this we deserve. 
but it gives it to us as people who are spiritually broke and desperate. And if he relates that way to us, if he's related that way to you, how can we in turn, when we see people who are in need, think, I'm just going to pad my own pocket. I'm just going to keep for myself. I know this person's in need. I know the church needs funds to do missions work. I know people are in need, but I'm just going to keep it for myself. I'm going to pad my own bank account. That is not how Nehemiah related to his people, and that was definitely not how Christ is related to us. There's a sacrificial generosity that was exemplified in Christ that is called forth in us to say, I am willing to give till it hurts. I am willing to give from the abundance God's given me to gain for others. And as an aside, but not an aside, if you are someone, I will say this, setting money things aside, if you are someone who has never known God to be that generous God towards you, that one who is willing to lavish his love and his forgiveness and eternal life upon you, and you think, man, I got nothing to give to him. Like I have just a trail of sin behind me, and even right now in my life, God would never receive me. God would never be kind to me. I will tell you, you are wrong. Like God does not look at you and look for you to offer something to him. He knows you can't. But he is willing to offer anyone in this room eternal life, offer forgiveness because his son became poor and going to the cross and dying for those very sins that you're broken about. He was already crushed for them, and he is glad to offer you a deal that you should not refuse, that he will give you eternal life. He will give you forgiveness of your sins if you will simply come to him with those sins, repenting and saying, please forgive me. He will offer that to you. He has given it to me. He has given it to countless people in this room, and he will give it to you. If we are people who have received that generosity, we ought to be people who have that type of sacrificial generosity to fellow Christians at minimum. If if we have this love of fellow Christians, this regard for them like we saw in the first half of this text, that should translate into action. It should translate into a willingness to give up my possessions, to give up the money and things that God has given to me to help others who are in need, to help advance the things that God is doing. In 2 Corinthians, that same letter in the next chapter, um, Paul reminds us that as we do this, as we give to people's needs, as we pool funds together as God's people, he says this. He says, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, For God loves a cheerful giver. And that ought to be true in us as we see opportunities, as we pass offering plates around, as we take up special offerings, as we just see people in need in our life group, in our community, we ought to help them and not out of compulsion. I've got to prove something. I'm publicly exposed, but because I want to, because I'm cheerful, because I see it as a means to show my love to them. So we need to put our regard for fellow Christians into practice. Some of us, just when it comes to our finances, we need to be proactive rather than reactive. There's there's many, especially in younger generations, I can be this way, that we just kind of spend our money reactively and whatever needs come up, whatever bills come due, we just spend that. And then we're surprised when we have nothing left to actually be generous with. But generosity is something that you have to plan. It's something that you have to prepare for and try to set yourself up to be able to do, to be able to say, you know what? Like we can forego this thing to have this money freed up to give towards God's people, to give to people who are in need, to give to the mission that God has called us to do. We have to create margin 
for generosity. It's not just something that can happen if you don't plan for it to happen. And this is not something that I would just call the extravagantly wealthy among us to do or that God would call the extravagantly wealthy among us to do. You read 2 Corinthians, and Paul talks about how this people who were in poverty gave, how they were generous, how they, how they gave from the very little that they have. So God wants us to be active in doing this. I, I will not belabor this point, but I, I would call us as God's people to be even generous towards our fellow church members and our family here as Christ's covenant church. Like to give towards the causes that we are seeking to work on and advance together. Uh, if every week on the back of our bulletin, some of you pay attention to this, some of you don't, but we track what we've budgeted to spend and what we have actually received in. And right now, our fiscal year ends two Sundays from now. And we're 15000 behind our budget from what we've actually given. Uh, and I, I'm not saying that to like say, hey, somebody just cut a check for $15,000. None of us can do that. But when we are, a, like think of your own family unit. When you fall behind and you're past due on bills and you, you know these are things we need to do that we're called to do, you make adjustments, don't you? You, you, you say, we can get a little extra work here. We can cut this cost here. We can do things uh, to be able to meet these ends, to be able to do these things. And if we're to have a regard for the collective community and not just see my finances as mine just to control, when we get into circumstances like this where we're behind or where we're desirous as I hope and the pastors hope in the years to come, we got people, there's a young lady going to Texas today to start back with linguistic studies to go to the nation of Colombia to reach people who've never heard the gospel. And we don't have money in our budget right now to be able to help and send her. But there's going to be opportunities in the years ahead for us to say, I'm willing to forego the money that God's given to me to advance these things. And I I would call you to be intentional and to think even today, think in the weeks ahead, what are ways that I can adjust to be able to give towards what God is calling us to do as the community of God's people here at CCC? Even next week, you're going to have an opportunity. We're going to have Cardinal Services come in and share some about what they do here in our community. We're going to take up a special love offering for them. That will be a small opportunity for you if you'd like to be generous towards a specific cause, not a recurring one, but a specific cause to say, I'd love to be generous and advance what they're doing. I'm going to end with this quote from John Piper, if we could put this up here. This isn't from the book, Let the Nations Be Glad. Uh, He said this, and I would encourage you to think on this, because last week we talked about how we have an opponent who's after us, and we have a mission God's called us to do here in our town and around the world to make disciples, but it takes money, it takes resources for us to pull together. He wrote this, he said, in wartime, we spend money differently. There's austerity, which means like plainness, kind of just plain living. He says there is austerity, not for its own sake, but because there are more strategic ways to spend money than on new tires at home. And what, what he was trying to get across is when, when a nation is in war, uh, they, they seek to do everything to advance the mission, to say, I'm willing to forego nice new stuff to be able to advance that. And the priorities get shifted in a good way to say, I'm willing to give of the things God's given me to advance the cause of God's people. And I would call us to remember that we are at war We've been given a mission to make disciples in Winona Lake, to make disciples in Colombia, to make disciples in Brazil, to make disciples all around the world. And it takes us being sacrificially generous to do it.
I want to pray for us that God 